0: The College Football Fix Podcast.
1: With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.
0: All right, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Appreciate you joining us this week i got Paul Meyerberg with me. I am Dan Walken from USA Today Sports. And, Paul, uh, I, it feels like a long time until college football is going to actually start. But this week, we have actual game times for week one games, for some of the big week one games. Um, we know when they're going to be. We know when they're on. Just run down real quick. 3.30 p.m. on ABC on September third, Alabama and Miami, seven thirty on ABC. Georgia Clemson that'll be in Charlotte, North Carolina, on Sunday, September fifth. Uh, Notre Dame, Florida State from Tallahassee, Monday, September sixth. Louisville, Ole Miss from Atlanta. We're back. It's it's coming back.
1: We we you know, actually Dan inside. we're a hundred days out. Like 100 for a hundred days, days um, which is wild. Yeah, this is always um, it's always fun to map out week one, especially the night games. This is these are particularly good. All three of these games that they've put on the map: ESPN, ABC. Um, not that Alabama, Miami is going to be competitive necessarily, but it's a matchup of two premier programs, and then Georgia, Clemson um, is one of the games of the year. So it seems to me like you can do a two for you can do a Saturday and a Sunday if you wanted to cover two games. If you if you worked for a for a publication that covered football games. You could definitely do two. And I actually love the Monday one because it's the perfect, like Monday Labor Day hangover game. It's probably going to be 48, 44 Louisville Ole Miss. That's going to be a fun weekend.
0: Hangover and Lane Kiffin in the same sentence.
1: That's never happened before. No, uh, uh, not Joey Freshwater.
0: Um, No, yeah. Actually, what's interesting about about the geography of it for that opening weekend is they're all kind of in the same area because – you start with that Alabama-Miami game at, at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. Uh, and then yeah, you could not make both games unless you had, like, a private plane, which I know you do. Um, Georgia Clemson's going to be in Charlotte, which is just kind of three hours up the road. And then uh, the Sunday game in Tallahassee, like, you can get from Atlanta to Tallahassee in, you know, about four-ish hours, four and a half hours. Uh, it's, not, it's not a bad drive at all. And then you, you come back on, on Labor Day to, to Atlanta for uh, for that Louisville Ole Miss game. So, yeah, you could actually, if you were, like, super ambitious, you could hit three of those four games in person.
1: Yeah, you could do a trifecta. That's outstanding. There was a time um, when we did things like that, and not just we, but, like, people who did our jobs would do that. You know what I mean? Like, we would do three games in four days, especially week one. Um I don't know if there's really an appetite for that anymore. But, yeah, you could definitely do that. And more than anything, um, these are the best games of week one, hence why they're on TV. But there are other good games week one um, that you, as a college football fan, can be transfixed to your television for the duration. So I'm looking forward to Saturday, September 4th. Um, Just to name – we're going to talk about this in depth as we get closer, but a few just because I actually – didn't remember any of them or never knew in the first place that these games are occurring that weekend on Thursday, you got Ohio state at Minnesota. Um, first look at probably CJ Stroud at QB LSU is at UCLA. Did you know that that week one LSU is at the Rose bowl? It, I, That's an interesting it's, it's game. One of those
0: games that like you, you probably saw somewhere along the way, but it just didn't register that that was actually going to happen this year.
1: Yeah. And UCLA is going to be much improved. Not good enough to beat LSU, but could be interesting. Uh, Penn State at Wisconsin, um, Stanford, Kansas State, and Arlington, maybe. Yeah, so a, a good week one, well, and we're 100 days out, and we can start counting back.
0: How about Boise State at UCF with uh, the debut of Andy Avalos at Boise and the debut of Gus Malzahn at UCF? Like, that's a great game.
1: Yeah, we've been waiting for that game. is game's a couple years overdue. Not that these teams won't both be good really you know, you know, this year as well, but would I like to see that game a few years back? Uh, I'm a big Andy Avalos guy, so we'll see how that plays out.
0: Yeah, and then also, by the way, uh, Oklahoma is playing at Tulane on opening weekend. How about that?
1: Interesting. That's the kind of game I could get uh, that in 2006 would have been on pay per view only, and Oklahoma would win by a field goal, and you'd have to pay 40 bucks to watch it. Um, I think Oklahoma probably rolls though. Yeah, but it's Oklahoma's just kind of interesting. Good it's just kind of interesting
0: that they're that they're opening at a group of five school on the road like that just doesn't happen very much
1: no i wonder why that is and why they felt like they needed to set up that arrangement
0: i, I you know i don't know like i certainly could ask but a lot of times uh, power five schools tulane is one of the places they'll go play because one they they probably feel like it's it's a, a win that they could get and it's also like an ideal road trip for for the fans you know you whatever school you know in kind of the south or midwest like you schedule a game at tulane your fan base like goes down to new orleans and has a great weekend that's just always kind of been the thing
1: mm-hmm. uh, you know another interesting yeah, game, that's a great point
0: another interesting game by the way on opening weekend uh, louisiana lafayette at texas like that that's like if i'm steve sarkeesian that is not the opener i want <laughs>
1: No, definitely not. I think ULL probably is going to take a slight step back. I still think they're one of the top, easily in the top quarter of the Sun Belt. Um, But no, that is not the kind of dream matchup. You want Gardner-Webb or something like that if you're a star. Uh, Because Louisiana, one thing we know about um, them under Napier is that they are really, really physical and very well coached. And uh, typically, if you go back to the last eight, nine years of Texas football, those two assets get the Longhorns in a lot of trouble. So, yeah, a good test for Texas and maybe a little bit of a glimpse into how good they'll be in 21.
0: You know, and I'm looking through these games. Like, it, this is actually maybe the best week one we've had in, in a long time. you got Penn State at Wisconsin in the opener.
1: You've got a couple Big Ten, Big Ten openers. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting. They never used to do that, and they're starting to, to spread out the schedule. Um, wasn't last year's week one? No, couldn't be last year. Maybe two years ago, week one was – was a flop or just wasn't that good. Even on paper, some, one of those years in the recent past, we've gotten used to having really good week ones. And yeah, I think this one on paper stacks up. Um, I mean, especially I know i stupid, but I, I like Texas tech against Houston. I mean, that's potentially down the road on, on new Year's six, you know, these are Oregon state at Purdue, a, a power five versus power five crossover. So there's a lot of interesting, intriguing games here that, um, probably won't be good games because we have no idea who's good and who's not at this point, especially with all these seniors coming back. But to me, I'm looking at the schedule. I'm getting pretty pumped up. I'm getting, you can hear it in my voice. I'm getting, I'm getting extremely excited about college football.
0: Well, and look, the, the Georgia Clemson game is, is the game that that everyone is going to be at. You know, if you're a national college football reporter traveling to a game week one like that's the that's the one you want to get assigned to that's the one you want to see in person and um you know it's going to be a 50 50 crowd it's it's going to be packed uh the only bad part about that game is they're calling it the duke's mayo classic Uh no no disrespect to the fine people at duke's mayo but um, mayonnaise is disgusting
1: yeah mayonnaise is trash Get that trash out of my face and off my television. I'm not going to, I don't respect mayo. I think mayo is disgusting as a condiment. I think it's, it has a gross texture. It has a bad taste. It's the it worst looks condiment gross.
0: there is. Worst condiment ever.
1: I mean, do you count pimento cheese as a condiment? No, I guess, that, no. I it it's spread because that's the worst.
0: It's a spread, but, but, but it includes mayo. It falls into the mayo category. Like anything yeah, of that is touched by mayo is mayo.
1: What about a lobster roll? Do you do the New England style? Like the Connecticut style.
0: cannot do the lobster roll unless yeah. it's, unless it's butter.
1: Right. Okay. I, I think that I don't know what that is called. I don't think that's called Connecticut style, but I do know that maybe that's Maine style. And then the bushy Connecticut people douse it in mayo. I don't know. Yeah. But I agree with you. I, li- I like the toasted um, like potato hot dog roll with uh, just the buttered lobster. Maybe some of the green stuff. They put one of the herbs on top sometimes, but yeah, no mayo. So you're sullying, to me, a game that's like the sriracha hot sauce um, kind of game matchup, which is an elite condiment, and that's Clemson, Georgia, which always should be a week one game as it has been in the past. It's always been a pretty good game. And to equate that with Mayo, Mayo is Bowling Green against Akron. That's the Mayo game, and they should only have Mayo sponsor crappy games that equate with a crappy condiment.
0: Yeah, you know what? We need to just go through all the week one games and assign them a condiment. Like what what is the condiment for for Notre Dame, Florida State? Like that feels like maybe like yellow mustard. Like it's good. You know what you're gonna get. It's 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 got a little tang, but ultimately it's 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 not it's not the best mustard you can get. Like it's just kind of it's just standard mustard.
1: Yeah, and I think it's what you got right is that you know what you're gonna get. Yeah. You're gonna get a lot of hype and then Notre Dame is going to like kind of pucks around for a bit and still win by 17. That's yellow mustard. Um, Alabama Miami um, honey mustard. Honey, honey yeah.
0: mustard. It's it's going to it's sweet, it's going to go down smooth. Um, you know, it's it's you're going to get a little kick probably at some point uh, in that game because uh, you know Alabama is is going to You know they're they're probably in the first quarter with a new quarterback and a a couple mistakes, but at the end of the day, like that's you know it's going to go down smooth.
1: Trying to think of, I think uh, Louisville, Ole Miss is probably just straight Jack Daniels. If that's a condiment, just put on a piece of fruit.
0: Yeah, Um, I I like the call though. Georgia, Clemson is is sriracha. I like that call because sriracha is an elite condiment now. I will say if I have the choice between Sriracha and Sambal Olek, I will always go Sambal Olek.
1: Sambal Olek is like uh, the thicker, chunkier sauce that you have to scoop out with a spoon, doesn't have a squeeze bottle.
0: Right. It's like the the chili garlic paste.
1: I'm into that as well. I think Sriracha as a spreadable condiment is in the same class as the yellow mustard, Um, a mayo if you want to go there. Um it, it can be, you can take a knife and spread some sriracha in a flat level across a piece of toasted bread.
0: Speaking of mayonnaise, um, is this the year Kirby Smart gets it done?
1: I was trying to think what happens if they lose to Clemson. I'm sorry that my dog is barking. If they lose to Clemson, where that puts Kirby Smart and what that says about his, like, where that, where that puts him on the hot seat, I think that would be a real trouble. So not in terms of him getting fired, but it'd be a trouble situation for him to be 0-1 and having lost to Clemson and basically being... Not a remove, but being put to the back burner of the, of the playoff talk after one week.
0: When did you get a dog, by the way?
1: Um, before Christmas. He's, been, he's pretty much been barking since.
0: Because uh, like we've been podcasting on and off for years, and I've never heard a dog in your house. So this is like a new development. It's rustic, though. I mean, it, it, it really kind of brings people into the real life uh, struggle. That, what our uh,
1: real life is like? Yeah. yeah, when you live in Brooklyn, New York, nine hundred and fifty square feet, and you have a dog, and two people are working in the same apartment, and your super is knocking on the door to come in and fix the blinds. This is real life, people. This is not. This is <laughs> not a joke. This is what our real life is like. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a cute. He's a cute guy. He's cute, but he's um, he's causing me some. Uh, he's causing me to get a little bit perturbed <laughs> right now but I'm okay. I'm keeping it
0: together. He's fine. So back to this Georgia thing really, really fast. I mean, look what JT Daniels showed at the end of last season, uh, you know, I live in Atlanta, so I, I know a lot of Georgia people. I'm around a lot of Georgia people. Um, like they are, they have high expectations and they're very excited for this season, but I do think like there's a, a little bit of apprehension you know, obviously the Pickens injury. We'll see how that plays out and whether he'll be able to get back quickly or, you know, at some point or not at all. I mean, some of those you just don't know exactly um, with with those kinds of injuries. But like, I just feel like Georgia fans have so much PTSD at this point that they will not emotionally allow themselves to go all in on. This team, even though I just think like if you take out all the variables and just look at the facts and the returning production and the quarterback play like they have as much shot at winning the whole thing as anybody.
1: Yeah, they always do, though, and that gets the root of the issue you're talking about, that you could go back the last three full seasons and legitimately say at this point of the year, Georgia's built to win the national title and then they lose to South Carolina or they can't beat Alabama or they can't beat Florida. Um, th- like we ha- we've kind of mentioned this in the past, like to a an degree. And I think Michigan's a really good example of it, of how we like speak about success for specific programs. And if you look through the history of Michigan football, Michigan football throughout, I mean, the modern history, not the, like the 1900s, but 1950 on Michigan football, every year is a nine win program or a 10 win program that every 15 years, 10 years will have what it takes to win a national championship uh, and we'll compete for one but they don't do it annually and they're not built to do it annually. And there's nothing in their modern history to tell you that every single year mission going to win or be in the mix for a national championship. Having said that Georgia specifically, these last few years to me, and I think fan base would agree. They've been in the mix and had opportunities, clearly a really good one against Alabama and Atlanta to win the national championship. And I think ask them to take that next step and expecting that of them is not like expecting Michigan to do it. Cause I think Georgia, Georgia is so well-constructed um, that, honestly, I wouldn't say disappointing, but you could say that they should have won a national championship by now. Uh, and that's just under Kirby Smart. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit of gun-shy fan base when your expectations are deservedly and, and, and well-deservedly high and you haven't gotten there. And Clemson, and we spoke about what it would mean to Kirby Smart, Clemson is that kind of uh, puckering game. Because if you lose to Clemson, the fact that, it's not a very difficult schedule the rest of the way. I, I wonder what that means for their bottom line. It probably doesn't keep them out of the playoff, obviously, but it makes the, the you know, amount of respect and that they'll get on a national level for the rest of the season, harder to achieve when you're playing South Carolina, Arkansas, Kentucky, so on down the line.
0: Yeah. We're all going to hype this game and deservedly so, and people are going to be really excited and it's going to take up a lot of hours on, on television and radio talking about that game. But honestly it's one that Georgia should win Georgia's got a better team than Clemson this year now, I'm not saying obviously not a better program or anything like that just if you look at at the rosters and the returning production this is one that Georgia should win and if they and I don't I would not normally say that about a Georgia Clemson game in, in in most years but I I feel strongly that way right now and if they don't it it's it's going to uh, continue to, to throw that burden on on Kirby Smart, who has done a good job, uh, certainly, with, with that program, but uh, they, they just have not quite uh, been able to, to break through. And, and I, I think one of their biggest problems is, is they play one stinker a year. Like, they just do. Yeah. And this is a sport where you just can't have that.
1: Well, it could be a microcosm, like we said. of and losing to Clemson game. game. You can argue that they should win. I can argue that they will win, um, obviously because Clemson is Clemson. Yeah. I, I think it's a fair, I think if you pulled a hundred people who are arbitrary, you probably have 55, 60 people say Georgia's built to win this game. Um, the fact that DJ played those two games last year and has a full off season, a real complete off season as the unquestioned number one, building a rapport, I think helps Clemson get into this, but Clemson's got some issues up front. Obviously skill town has been depleted though. They do get back to Justin Ross, that wide receiver. Um, yeah, it's a tough one for Georgia to say they should win it, but I think you probably, you're probably right. And they do lose it. Um, yeah. It would be really, really extremely painful. I think for that, for the program and for that fan base.
0: Since the last time we talked, the PAC 12 has hired a new commissioner. George Klayoffoff is the guy who the PAC 12 presidents chose to uh, replace Larry Scott and it was interesting because the initial reaction to the hire when it first started to get leaked to the media was who? Because he's not a name that people in college sports knew. He's never worked in college sports. Uh, he, in the job he's coming from directly, is the head of, of sports and entertainment of MGM Resorts. Uh, before that, he worked for NBC Universal as the chief digital officer was basically responsible or one of the people responsible for creating Hulu, which was the product of a merger between NBC and, and, and news Corp. Um, He also worked for MLB advanced media, sort of building out baseball's uh, digital operation. So this is a guy who's got experience in sports. He's got experience in television and digital media. He does not have experience in college sports and you know, it's kind of become canon in, in some circles that to do a job like a commissioner or an athletic director that you need to have worked on campus. I think there is something to be said for understanding the idiosyncrasies of college sports, for appreciating sometimes the tricky politics and the relationships that that you have to massage constantly and the frankly, just understanding the divide between the university side of the house and what a college president uh, does and and often the athletic department, especially in the Pac-12. By the way, like these are schools that um, they're not necessarily as as sports centric as a lot of SEC, ACC, Big Twelve schools. So there's a lot there, but uh, I thought he I thought it was a a, a good hire. Like I, I saw some people say it's outside the box. I don't really agree with that. I don't think it's outside the box. Just given his his sports. Um, uh, event background and and everything he's done in, in digital, but um, the question that he's going to have to face is how do you get the Pac-12 back on track from a football standpoint? And I'm I'm not sure that's one a commissioner can answer. But but what do you make of it? Have, have you heard anything, any feedback so far? And and what do you think the Pac-12's got to do here as they go into this leadership change?
1: Yeah. I think it's easy to criticize, uh, every hire to some respects, certainly a commissioner. Um, it's like low hanging fruit, especially when a guy comes from MGM and you know, nothing about him. Uh, Um, I truly say he's a great hire, but I I think the background is unorthodox, but not like out of left field, right? Like, and specifically one thing you mentioned, which I think is really interesting is his work with MLB and MLB advanced media. Um, even to this day, and certainly for its time, it's one of the great um, assets MLB ever had for itself. And one of the great things that it ever did to reach a broader audience in terms of being able to share its its, um, its video um, and share its information and its ability to, to even now explain safer metrics and analytics. Um, the PAC-12 has had a meshi- messaging issue, and not just in terms of defining its own message, but then getting that message out even within its own back yard let alone from coast to coast and his background to me as a promoter and and i think specifically even with mlb is an interesting twist to a job that um really needs someone to promote the league the way that delaney did for the big 10 uh slive and sankey do for the sec and so on so in that sense i think it's a fine fit and like you mentioned one thing about there's this idea that if you don't come from a sports background or, or a college sports background you don't know how to like work the, the back rooms and get things done. I think that's kind of ridiculous. And if anything, it's, it helps to come with a fresh perspective, especially if you are willing to listen and learn your way through things instead of like, you know, kind of putting your own stamp of how you would operate, like you would operate a casino or or Las Vegas business. Well, that's the thing is you
0: come from Las Vegas. Like you have to understand, you know, kind of the backroom, the art of the backroom deal.
1: (laughs) No, for sure. And I think you understand what it takes to get people to come to the table um, in, and not just in Vegas, but from the background that he comes in, in terms of dealing with people, dealing with celebrities, dealing with getting, you know, just simply getting deals done. And I think that's a tremendous asset for the Pac-12 because they couldn't really close anything as a conference, let alone get on the same page as a conference about silly things. So A, the, the basic thing I'm saying is if, if you're saying that this is a bad hire, there's really no evidence to support that. It's unorthodox, yes, because we're so used to guys being promoted from the deputy commissioner or coming over from the Southland to take over the American to then going over to the Big Ten or whatever. Um, it's just way too early to make any sort of pronounce. I personally think that his background is unique and in a sense uh, has the, the qualities that you're looking for in terms of what the Pac-12 needs at this moment. In terms of what football coaches think about him, I mean, it's way too soon, and, and obviously I don't, think that they have any real opinion on it Um, and for the Pac-12 to get better they need to hire better they need to invest more I don't think the commissioner has any kind of role in that.
0: that's the thing is a lot of those decisions are are on the campuses they're on the schools how much are you going to invest in football how much are you going to commit to do the things that the better schools in other leagues are doing and and in the Pac-12 there's there's a culture of supporting a a broad-based sports program you know by and large the sec schools offer the minimum number of sports that they can offer and they try to be good in those sports the best they can be in those sports a lot of these pac-12 schools are are trying to support 20 something division one sports and that's that's hard that spreads you thin it also you you look at cost of living out on the West coast. Um, you, you almost have to when you talk about hiring better in a way you almost have to overspend because if you're especially talking about assistant coaches, you know, a wide receivers coach might get offered, you know, $300,000 or $350,000 a year. If, if he's choosing between, you know, Cal Berkeley and Mississippi state, well, you know, the, is going to go a lot further in Mississippi. And those are things that that (laughs) it's hard, but that's real, man. And that's up and down the PAC 12. I mean, you're talking about cities like, like Seattle and Portland or not, not Portland, but um, uh, you know, the Bay area, LA. uh, That's not necessarily something that's, that's easy to overcome.
1: Yeah. And the, and the issue, and this is a true story because Stanford people, Stanford staffers have told me how crappy it is to make a nice living, quote unquote, and still live in a, in a, in a box because you can't get anything in the Palo Alto area because it price per square foot is off the charts or in the Bay Area, um, the issue isn't with hiring head coaches because if you if you're an assistant anywhere, a head coach job, certainly power five is as enticing as it gets. You take that job. The issue is hiring assistants. Um, and you need to overpay assistance for that cost of living, like you said. So, um, our boy, George, we're going with Kleavkov. That the yeah. Pronunciation? Kleavkov, yeah. Uh, Klavkov. That one's going to, that makes me feel really much mouth when I try to say that name. Um, yeah, I mean, he can negotiate or the league can negotiate a healthier and more supportive TV contract and broadcast rights to increase the coffers, but, um, yeah, the, the Pac twelve needs to hire better football coaches. And I, I don't want to be cruel to anyone, but they need to hire they need to hire better football coaches. Well and also better what football they need. Coaches win football games.
0: They need USC and Oregon to be really good. Because even when USC was dominating under Pete Carroll, it's not like the Pac twelve overall was an awesome football conference, but the perception of it was certainly not relevant to how good USC was, and so nobody talked about it. All they talked about was USC, and obviously USC is miles away from it right now. And this is a year where we'll see we'll see which direction it takes. Because I look, I don't think anybody believes that Clay Helton is the guy who's going to get USC back to that level, and yet he's not done a, a poor job, and and it just kind of feels like everyone's walking you know in in slow motion to to get usc back to where it needs to be
1: yeah and and like in the overall sense about the commission like if you're gonna <clears throat> run the pac-12 i think your number one job um certainly and, and football despite the fact that they care about every sport football still lifts all boats And and I think that the number one job is to increase the reputation of the league. And and the only way to do that obviously is really to start winning football games, but there has to be a way for the conference itself to do a better job of marketing its games. I mean, embrace the 9.00 AM start. Um, Put your teams on TV at noon in windows of time that only really Fox puts a good game on. Um, I don't know what the Avenue is, but reputationally the Pac-12 is as bad today as it's ever been. Um, It's, worse than the big 10 was pre-urban. And I think you remember what the reputation was like in the big 10 as the slow plotting, you know, antiquated football conference where urban really changed everything in 2012. Um, It's in a bad place for what we care about, which is football. So, you know, that's not a one-year fix, but the long-term goal for the Pac-12 is to, you know, get a seat back at the table and stop sitting at the kids' table.
0: Well, and just to show you kind of the difference, uh, certainly, from a money perspective, you know, the Pac-12, they're, you know, they're just dying to, to renegotiate these media deals so that they can get on a more level playing field with the other leagues. Meanwhile, the SEC just announced they're distributing $23 million per school, basically just as a pandemic relief measure, which I don't even know how many of these, these schools really need it, but they just have so much money that, yeah, here's $23 million because you at South Carolina, you know, wanted to fire your coach. So, you know, here's, here's, here's the money that'll, that'll cover that. It's crazy.
1: 23 million bucks, <clears throat> $23 million as a rainy day fund per team. That's 14 teams. I'm going to kill some time here while I do some math. It's a lot of money. That's 300 322 million dollars. Okay, so this is from last July, according to our great Steve Berkowitz, who does all this stuff. Uh, Let me get this right. The PAC-12 distributed 32.2 million per school in the 2018-19 fiscal year. Um, So that's what they distributed per school. Like, here's your check for the year in the most recent filing as of last July. We'll see again soon what they'll get in 2020. Um, The PAC-12, the SEC just gave $23 in a rainy day fund for COVID relief. And that's great if you need it. I think it just goes to show as we close with the PAC-12 commission talk, there's just separate playing fields and money talks in college sports. And the SEC is so loaded that it can give out $322 million just to help schools. It's 14 schools make ends meet due to COVID.
0: Yeah, it's really not the Power 5 anymore. It's it's kind of the Power 2, the SEC and the Big 10. And then there's a a second tier with the Big 12 and the ACC, and then there's a third tier with the Pac-12. That that's really where we're at. From from a money standpoint.
1: Yeah. Mhm. And the Pac-12, I don't I mean, I remember when we did kind of Larry Scott retrospectives earlier this year when he announced that his upcoming retirement, um at a, at a time, there was a time when the Pac-12 was ahead of the curve. Like they signed a really fruitful, lucrative TV contract. But wasn't it like eight years or 10 years? And just kind of in that interim 10-year or eight-year period, they've been lapped so many times. Like you said, they need to get back like on even just approximate level with the SEC and the big 10. I mean, you're not even going to get in that group, but yeah, if they can get into tier two, I think that would be a game changer for the conference. Well,
0: in 2010, shortly after Larry Scott got there, he essentially tried to build a, a, the first super conference. He, he tried to get Texas, uh, Oklahoma, Texas, A&M, Oklahoma state, and uh, I guess, Texas tech and Colorado to who was who was in the Big Twelve at the time to to join the Pac twelve, you know, and and it would have been or the Pac ten, so it would have been the Pac sixteen, and they were close, but obviously Texas blew that up at the last minute. Uh, the Longhorn Network was created, and and the rest is history. But the entire dynamic of college sports would have changed instantly and forever had Larry Scott been able to pull that off, and you would not be talking about a Pac twelve that is poor relative to their peers
1: yeah i'm just trying to imagine like that would have been 2012 that i kicked in to the
0: you, uh, yeah we, yeah
1: what what football would look like today basically you would have eliminated one of the power five left with power four
0: yeah the what other would leagues would have all gone like? to 16 the, the other leagues would have gone to 16 there's no doubt about it um
1: so, so big 10 would have still picked up And this is like a 10-year-old conversation. I always think it's interesting to revisit. The Big Ten would have picked up the rest of the Big 12, which they kind of did in a sense. I mean, they picked up Nebraska. Maybe they pick up Missouri.
0: Yeah, Add Rutgers in
1: Maryland. Yikes. Uh, SEC gets a 16, no prob. Yeah, that would have been fun. Um, Like, I think the issue at the time, I remember people writing about, oh, this is going to you know, make things hyper-partisan in terms of just a select few number of teams or a select few number of conferences that can win the national championship. Well, I think that's happened anyway. Um, so we kind of got to that point, even with Power Five. That was a very interesting time, though, Dan. Where were you? Where were you working in 2010? 2000, I was wor-
0: I was working at the Memphis uh, Commercial Appeal during that that thing, and uh, I remember uh, because obviously Memphis had a huge interest in in the conference realignment. They were in Conference USA at the time, and they were trying to get into the Big East. That's what the the dream for them was to get into the Big East. And they were sort of rooting for some of this chaos, thinking and hoping that when the uh, when the musical chairs stopped, that they'd have a spot in, you know, in kind of the, the fifth conference, whatever that was going to be, um, because you would have you would have consolidated this. The, you would have basically consolidated into four power conferences, and then there would have been a fifth conference. And, and they were they I think they were sort of hoping at the time to get into that one.
1: There was a time when the Big East was one of the five power leagues and had an automatic bid to the bowl championship series. It yes, was a crazy did. time.
0: Yes, they did. It and was a crazy s- time. And they sent some crappy teams to it.
1: Do you remember Louisville playing Wake Forest in the Orange Bowl? I don't know how you could ever forget that. Do you Do you remember was,
0: Do you remember Pittsburgh playing Utah
1: in one yeah, of those games? I, I, if you you know me. why I remember? Because Utah ran a play in that game that has burned in my memory because it, it made uh, – I think I – simultaneously vomited and crapped my pants in the same time out of surprise because I'd never seen anything like it on the football field. They threw like a bubble screen to the left. This was, I don't even know if Urban was coaching in this game. He might've already left, but he certainly, his fingerprints were on this game. Alex Smith at QB, they were bubble screen to the left. The guy like took two steps and then lateral it to another receiver on an end around walked into the end zone. Kind of like presaged the way that Dana Holgerson at West Virginia bombed Clemson a few years later. Um, yes I do remember that game really well Walt Harris on the sideline at Pitt I think he left like two days later to take a, uh, a job at Stanford and do you remember when UConn went
0: yes UConn right, was in a BCS
1: Bowl <laughs> UConn, <laughs> UConn was in a BCS Bowl they lost by a thousand to Oklahoma and then Randy Edsel left for his dream job he's back at his dream job now which ended up being UConn all along and those mm. were crazy times Crazy times for college football. Nothing made sense. It was like a video game. Nothing made sense. Nothing made sense.
0: Yeah, now, and now Randy Edsel is getting paid by the first down.
1: He gets six bucks every time UConn gets a first down, and he gets a $1.50 every time they get a third down stop. He's got a great contract.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that sort of somewhat leads us into the last thing I want to talk about, which is Rutgers, uh, because Rutgers was caught up in all of that. And kind of in the same – Time frame, they were a pretty good program. Uh, they, they didn't quite make a BCS game, they got close when they were in the Big East, and then Greg Schiano left, went to the NFL, and then Rutgers went straight into the crapper. And now Greg Schiano's back, and they're um, they're feisty. Tell us about Rutgers. You had a great story about uh, Ciano and Rutgers on USA Today, uh, which everyone should go read and check out. What uh, what did you learn?
1: Well. I learned a few things about Shiano himself, and if no one's familiar, and I think if you're listening to us, you you are familiar. I don't want to insult you by suggesting you don't know about Greg Shiano's previous history at Rutgers. Still, Rutgers in 2001 was a laughing stock. Like Rutgers became a punchline heading into 2020, but they were a laughing stock in 2001. They would routinely, routinely lose commits to schools like Delaware. Uh, FCS schools, Ivy League schools, and then they would lose to those teams routinely um, under Shiano's predecessor, even through Shiano's first four years. By his fifth year in 2005, they started a streak of six bowl games or five bowl games in six years, even six and seven. In 2006, they were a win away from reaching the BCS. They lost in overtime to West Virginia in the regular season finale. Um, So that was heartbreaking, but still the best year in program history. Um, What I've learned about Shiano. In the ten years between one departure and his return, is that he's really a changed guy? And not that I covered him at Rutgers the first time, but um, from people who worked for him, and even by his own admission, he was a control freak in the Urban Meyer, Bill Belichick vein. I mean, every single thing that Rutgers was about—from the clothes they wore to what time they they had to arrive for meetings to how they conducted practice, to so on down the line. Very Tom Coughlin-esque. He controlled every nook and cranny of it. And I was very surprised um, that over his you know 10-year absence that he's really mellowed into a different kind of person. It just He's not bothered by the little things anymore. So I think that speaks to his maturity as just a guy. You kind of forget that he's only 54. You kind of think he's older because he's been around for so long. But um, I think his imprints are back on the program in a bit of a different way. And, and obviously you're seeing immediate results because they won three games last year in the big 10. I think that matched their total big 10 win total the previous four years. Um, they're clearly going places and it's good for Shiano because we all know what he was defined by in that interim, which is not winning a ton of games at Ohio state and, and putting together top recruiting classes, but what happened at Tennessee, I think this is a reminder to a lot of people that he truly is one of the best coaches in the country. He's a top twenty coach in college football, I, and I and I challenge anyone to dispute that. And I think he's going to have Rutgers within probably two years back in a bowl game and and kind of in the mix to change how things look at the East after Ohio State.
0: Yeah, and not that I want to like rehash everything that that happened with uh, the Tennessee situation, and obviously people who uh, are familiar with me no kind of, I got caught up in that in, in a weird way. And um, there, there are certainly people out there who think like I'm some big, like Greg Schiano fan or buddy or whatever. I, I, I don't I don't know the guy, um, but what I do know is that he not only had, he not only turned Rutgers around the first time and was a very good coach, But I think the thing that that maybe got lost a little bit and why I just never understood the opposition to him from Tennessee fans is he was a hell of a recruiter. I mean, look how many guys – look how many – like his first round at Rutgers, look how many guys they put in the NFL. Like it was a lot of – he had a lot of dudes that that were in the NFL that played under him. A lot of them came from Florida. Like do you realize how good of a recruiter you have to be to get guys – from Florida to, to, to go to, you know, new Brunswick, New Jersey.
1: Like that's not- yeah, one thing he did. No, for sure. I, and, and, and talent development also defined that, that first tenure. One thing that he did say to me, and, and this is just based off what you said about going down to Florida. He's worried is too strong a word, but I think he understands the landscape has changed. Like sure. when he was, first off, uh, I don't think like, you want to talk about how close Greg Shiano's career was to being completely different. Like he was very close, like a matter of just timing away for being the Miami guy and not Larry Coker. And you talk about how that thing's changed in terms of how his career would look from there because he was a Miami assistant and knew the area, had huge connections and, and just was very well regarded down there. So he would start in 2001, two, three, four, flying down there and conducting basically satellite camps. And you'd find guys that in the era before recruiting exploded, who just were under the radar in December and November, who are rising seniors who hadn't put out tape and they would find them, convince them to come North. And then they'd turn them into all conference guys, NFL guys. I don't think it's going to be that easy as it was, but at the same time, I think he's got more clout and more cachet to sell period than he did early in the first tenure. So recruiting is going to be an interesting deal for them and it's going well right now for 22. So you're seeing that people are listening.
0: Yeah. I just think, I just always like judge coaches not, not just by the win loss record or like program expectations. I, I just look at it like if you have a track record of being able to identify talent and then develop it and put it in the NFL on a pretty consistent basis, like I, I don't think that's a fluke. I think that that says something about your operation. And that's why I thought, okay, Greg Shiano doesn't know the SEC necessarily. He's not worked in the SEC, but. I think he would have been able to recruit very well at Tennessee and build like a good infrastructure, a consistent predictable infrastructure that would have gotten them players developed them. And, and, you know, I don't know whether they would have won an sec title, but they, they would have been very competitive. So I just never understood the opposition, but you know, fans react emotionally to football hires based on perception and I, you know, just don't know that there's a lot you can do about it. So,
1: yeah, well,
0: we certainly can say, would have done better than Jeremy Pruitt.
1: Yeah, he would have been a better hire than what they've got. Uh, I think if you could turn back the clock, you probably would do that over again. I would personally want Greg shannon to be Tennessee's coach if I supported Tennessee football over the guy who didn't know what asparagus is. That's just my personal take. Shannon's a smart guy. I think he knows many vegetables. Uh, so um, I would have done that hire. Personally, and look like I think Tennessee actually Rutgers is great, but this is not a slam on Tennessee. In a sense, Rutgers is great preparation for Tennessee because Tennessee, like Rutgers, can recruit in its own backyard and can find the best talent inside Tennessee and Memphis and in the surrounding kind of border states. But Tennessee needs to leave that area to to recruit their talent. Tennessee is a national recruiting program. I think in the fact that Rutgers needed to go to Florida to support their foundation guys, which is always in state. As a recruiter, I think Shiano would have done great at Tennessee. And yeah, would he have won an SEC championship? I know you don't want to relitigate it, but I actually do. Because (laughs) if I was a Tennessee fan, I would be pissed off at the clowns and the idiots who didn't let us hire Greg Shiano. Because Greg Shiano is going to win more games at Rutgers probably in the next couple years. I bet you if they're both there in 2024 or 2025, Rutgers will win more games than Tennessee in the Big Ten, which is just as tough a conference. I have almost no doubt about it. You could have hired this guy. And by this point, right now, you would have had multiple bowl games in a row. You would have an identity as a program. You'd have complete buy-in from your players. You'd have great talent development. Um, you'd be frustrated at times because the offense might you know, spit up every once in a while because he's a little bit behind in terms of what he wants. No, at Rutgers, they hired the Oklahoma State former Princeton coordinator and things that worked out well. Yeah. If I was a Tennessee fan, I'd be pissed off because you could be in a really good place right now, year four, year five under Shiano.
0: Well, Tennessee fans are perpetually pissed off anyway. So um, it is what it is. It happened the way it happened. You can't go back and change it. Uh, but I certainly from a Rutgers standpoint, I'm, I know they're very thankful that they had an opportunity to rehire Greg Shiano. And and certainly uh, it was a good story. Certainly, Encourage everyone to go check it out. Uh, that's going to wrap us for today. We'll come back as soon as we can in the next week or so with another podcast. And, uh, Paul, any any words of wisdom as we sign off here other than, uh, agreement on, on how horrible mayonnaise is?
1: Mayonnaise is bad. Greg Shano, good. Jeremy Pruitt, bad. Asparagus, uh, good. Hey, are, are there any, um, truly bald, truly bald, successful college football coaches.
0: <laughs> wow. We're like truly going totally bald. on a different James Franklin. Uh, topic.
1: Yeah. James Franklin, right?
0: Well, the question I have is with James Franklin is, could he grow hair if he wanted to?
1: I think all, I mean, Clay Helton could grow hair if he wanted to. Um, I don't know if his wife wants him to um, or he wants to. I think he makes a conscious choice to do that. Clay Helton's a successful coach. And James Franklin also successful with a bald head, but as a bald, truly bald coach ever won a national championship, I'm going to wow. research this. I'll have an answer next time.
0: That's a great question. All right. Well, uh, thanks everybody for listening. That, that certainly gives us a nice teaser, a cliffhanger for next time. We'll, we'll do our research. We'll come back on the college football fix from USA today sports. He's Paul Meyerberg. I'm Dan Wolkin. We'll talk to you next time.
1: This is the College Football Fix podcast from USA
0: Today Sports.